welcome to episode 23 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your crazy as a loon host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. I have a special guest joining me to talk about the next two season two episodes of Hawaii Five O, episode 20, Cry Lie, and episode 21, Most Likely to Murder. And of course, since I have a special guest, we will be spoiling the episodes, so check the description. I will give you a timestamp on about what time the spoilers occur, so you can avoid those. And also, I will give a spoiler warning before we start the discussion during the chat. I want to give you guys plenty of heads up, because both of these episodes, particularly Most Likely to Murder, you really, really need to watch them before you listen to us. You do not want to be spoiled for these. Uh, apologies for the weird little echo you might hear every once in a while. That was due to some technical difficulties on my end. And by technical difficulties, I mean, I'm actually not very good at this whole podcasting thing. I know, it comes as a shock, right? But it's true. So, sorry for that. The echo thing. Not me being bad at podcasting. I'm not going to apologize for that. Anyway, our guest is waiting. Let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> My name is McGarrett. I'm with 5-0. Now, suppose you tell me your story. Been over it a dozen times. Well, let's try it again. Now, how did you set this deal you claim to have made? I met a guy two months ago. Said he had contact with 5-0 and was I interested. Talked about it, and I got down to numbers. I said, I want to see the man. That's when I had a meeting with Kelly. So who was the guy you met? Who was the guy you met? I don't remember his name. And where did you say you met Kelly? Alamona Park. When? Hmm? Month ago. Tuesday, 11 p.m. You got a good memory. Go on. So he spelled it out. 200 a week and you guys will lay off. Anybody else moved in, you'd tip me. And you've been paying ever since? Six times. Who did you give the money to? Nobody. It was a drop. I get a call here every Monday night about 9. From this man who said he was Chin Ho Kelly? It was him. I got in a car right alongside him. 65 two-door blue sedan, if you're interested. Oh, I'm interested. You're not going to sweep this one under the rug, McGarrett. No, I'm going to pull the rug back on this one all the way. But you better be very positive about your information, Mr. Amaro. Because a man's good name and reputation is at stake. Season 2, Episode 20, Cry Lie. Air date, February 4th, 1970, directed by Paul Stanley. This is his fourth of 19, and written by Preston Wood. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. Chin Ho and Danny are on the scene helping HPD with a raid on an apartment. They nail a dealer named Amaru, who is most put out by this situation. He claims that he's paying protection money to Five-O, and he specifically names Chin Ho as his contact. Steve arrives, and Amaru tells him that he met a guy with 5-0 connections who hooked him up with Chinho Kelly. He can't remember the name of the guy, but he can remember every little detail about his arrangement with Chin. Carl Brome is relaxing poolside and reading the paper, which details the allegations of bribery made against 5-0. Lawyer Eddie Calho assures him that it's good to use the media like this because the governor is terrified of any hint of corruption after a recent scandal. There are only so many ways that the police can respond, which makes them vulnerable. He tells Mr. Brome that this will get rid of 5-0, and it will allow them room to work. 
Mr. Brom asks Calhoun when his little project will be finished, and he tells him it's done when McGarrett is indicted. Steve calls Chin into the office and asks him where he was when Amaru claims they met for the payoff. After some deliberation, Chin guesses that he was at home. Steve wants Chin to take a polygraph test, and Chin agrees. While he gets his polygraph done, a local reporter named Dave Garland meets with Steve in his office, where Steve briefs him on everything going on. Dave agrees to keep things quiet for now, but if something should come up with Chin's polygraph, Steve assures him that he'll be allowed to see it. Once Dave leaves, Steve talks to the governor, letting him know how things went with Dave. The governor is prepared to jump on any sign of corruption with both feet. According to the polygraph administrator, the test shows that Chin is consistent, but in his opinion, Chin is more upset about this than he shows. Chin goes home to his wife and house full of kids. In the kitchen, he tells his wife about the bribery accusations. At first, she jokes with him, saying that $1,200 isn't enough. But when he asks if she can remember where he was on the night in question, she realizes just how worried he really is. A goon named Ray calls Calho and tells him that they're all set. Calho tells him to make it loud. And he does. Ray and another guy chase another car, shooting aimlessly out the window. The other driver, Vern, deliberately yet gently, runs off the road. Ray stops alongside him as he gets out of the car and reminds the guy not to pull any tricks, blowing out one of the car windows for emphasis. Chin Ho has gone fishing, but Steve wants him in the office because Vern is making allegations against him. Vern doesn't know shit about anything, except he has $5,000 he was supposed to give to Chin, and someone attempted to double-cross him. He doesn't know who he's working for, even when Steve suggests Brome, but he can pick Chin out of a lineup as the man he's been delivering the cash to. Steve talks to Chin, who asks if he needs an alibi. Steve then talks to the governor and defends Chin as best he can, but the governor wants Steve to relinquish the investigation to another agency. Steve won't, but the governor warns he might not have a choice. Dave, the reporter, talks to Steve, telling him that he got an anonymous tip about a bank account. Steve has no comment, but he gives the account information for John Lee Sung to Danny. Danny talks to the bank manager, Mr. Summers, who gives Danny the account info. There's exactly $1,200 with $200 payments. Mr. Summers opened the account himself, and he describes Chin perfectly, but admits that he didn't ask for ID at the time. Mr. Summers continues his questioning at headquarters with Steve, who examines the signature card. Mr. Summers says that the man signed with his left hand, but Chin is right-handed, though Steve tells him that sometimes people will do that to conceal their handwriting. Mr. Summers tells Steve that the man wore a blue suit, and Danny leaves to verify if Chin has one. He does, but it's wool and in storage because the temperature is too hot for wool. Steve finds it very curious that Mr. Summers can remember Chin Ho so exactly, but the tellers don't. It's also rather curious that Mr. Summers remembers Chin Ho so well, but can't remember any of the other accounts he opened around the same time. As Mr. Summers leaves, Steve tells him to give a thought to the penalty for perjury in Hawaii. Steve tells Danny to follow him. Mr. Summers immediately goes to Calho, complaining about Steve's investigation. He wants out, but Calho says no. Instead, he offers him a bonus of ten grand. Summers accepts and leaves, unaware that he's just sealed his fate. Steve questions Chin Ho about the account and the payoffs. Unfortunately for Chin Ho, his son Tim is his alibi, and he doesn't want him involved. Chin can't prove he wasn't in the bank, and Summers is the most problematic of the witnesses because he's spotless. Chin is understandably upset and frustrated, but because Chin can't account for any of the dates, Steve has no choice but to suspend him, unaware that Calho is about to set his man up for an even bigger crime. 
As I said, I have a special guest joining me to discuss these two episodes. You know him because he's an author, a prolific podcaster, and he's a damn good sport because the last time he was on Bookum Dano, he had to endure Gavin McLeod singing in a prison shower, and he still <laughs> agreed to come back. He's the one, the only <laughs> Mr. Daniel Budnick. How are you, Dan? I'm, I'm doing all right. Thank, thank you. Uh, I, I, I just love the thought that I will be back for every season for at least one episode. Yes. I, I, I like that. Yes. Oh, that's a joy. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. It was fun to, um, it was fun to watch, uh, it was fun to watch some season two episodes. Um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't actually watched a show in a while and I watched a few over the past few days to kind of get myself caught up again. So I'm good. I'm good. I'm good to chat about these two. Gosh, I miss Gavin McLeod nude. <laughs> showering away just enjoying i mean he enjoys his body we're enjoying his body how can you go wrong you really can't Mm -mm -mm. since i i'm kind of uh making it up to you about gavin mcleod being nude i gave you instead martin sheen with a mustache so tell me what did you think of this episode uh you know i i um i i I quite like the episode yeah when he shows up and he's like golfing by that crime lord's pool and he uh he uh he uh hits the uh the golf ball into the large pool hole in one i was like he is he is sheening it up big time i mean you can you can sort of see where uh charlie's sort of craziness may have come from when you watch this early martin and i love too he's got a bit of a voice like this for some reason i'm i'm not sure why I'm t- I sound a bit like Harvey Firestein right there, but I didn't mean to. You know, he's got kind of a deeper voice, kind of like this when he talks, and it's uh, it's I, it's I, I really enjoyed the episode. the the one The one thing with it that I kept thinking throughout was, would it have been a better episode if now we're? I don't think we're ever going to think that Chin Ho did this, uh, the things that he's accused of. But would it have been a, a, a better episode if they had, we had not known so early on exactly what was going on? That was my one thing with it. I tried to think because I watched it twice, and the first time I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this is what's happening." And there's this kind, of, <laughs> this kind of weird thing was it seems like everyone in Hawaii that they run into is part of this organization, in order to get Chin Ho arrested. Which I found pretty fun, um, and uh, but but I I did kind of wonder, would the episode have been better if we there was a bit of ambiguity behind whether or not Chinho may have done this, um, uh, and in the end I couldn't decide just because and I won't I I won't say anything but the uh, because I think the ending is quite lovely the way they they're able to sort of save the day and the only way they could have done that was if we knew what was going on. So overall, I think I think it's a it's a fun episode. It's um, it's uh, it, yeah, it really piles the stuff on 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 Chin Ho pretty pretty heavy, and I you know the guys are they're trying their best throughout to support him, but <laughs> I did I did it almost becomes a running gag where it's like um, so can you describe this guy? Oh sure, yeah, he was um, yeah, Chinese of course, five uh, ten, maybe five eleven, two hundred thirty pounds, and it's like you hear that like eight times or something in the episode. <laughs> it was, it's so great to hear because it's like by the end you're like yeah five ten, maybe five eleven, two hundred thirty pounds, Chinese of course, and and it, which which I loved. It's yeah. The episode has a nice pace to it. It begins really well with a with that with that opening sort of um, the guy they grab who who is is the 
the the second time I watched it, it was it was great great to think they like set this guy up in this apartment specifically to like throw so much like, oh yeah, well it was a cop who did it and it was a cop da da all this sort of exposition out and I I I, I like the um, I like the plan that the bad guys have. It's over elaborate, but it's fun, and um, I, I think the episode has a nice pace to it. Um, I like that banker guy who. Um, becomes less and less um, trustworthy as the scene goes along and I think and another thing I love I love um, uh, Chinho's oldest son the one who doesn't seem to know the way a phone works dad I'm on the phone and he just kind of stands there staring at it <laughs> I, I know that's not really the way the phone works but overall I think I think it's, it's a solid episode um, and here's the thing is I haven't seen all of them but I would bet no one was really... Go- but you'd have to be the one to tell me this. No one would really have gone into it thinking, he did it. What did he do? You know, he's got all these kids to support. What did he do? Why did he do this? I would think most people from the get-go would think he didn't do it. What's going on? But but that's why I think, I wonder if, if they had kept it a little more secret. Would people have thought, oh my gosh, is is he up to something? Or But overall... I quite enjoyed the episode. It was fun to watch. Mr. Sheen was was nutty. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, and 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 it does and and I, it does do that thing I, that I mentioned that I like, where like characters kind of keep like the the one guy who gets pulled over on the road and sort of hijacks kind of, and then the banker. It keeps introducing these completely these characters from completely different realms of society. And in the end, they all go to 5'10", 5'11", Chinese, of course, 200. And I love that it's like they've got everyone on the on the payroll to try to break up McGarrett and, and the 5'0". So overall, I thought, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like this one. I mean, obviously, I love Chin Ho. I think sure. you're right. No one's going to believe that Chin Ho was on the take because it's Chin Ho. Yeah. I mean, look at him. Mm-hmm. He's fabulous. Mm-hmm. He, d- he might have eight children, but he is a very honest man. He is going to earn his money honestly. I think what it hinged on was, even though we knew what the plot was, it was how are we going to get Chin Ho out of this? Because as at one point Steve says that the other two guys, Amaru and the other guy, he has a name. It might be Vern, but I kept calling him the rando guy. <laughs> They're like petty criminals. They're easily, you can't take their word for anything. But Mr. Summers, the bank manager, he's going to be the one that we're really is really going to stick it to us. Yes. So yes. we all know that, and this really is, and it's an episode that is an exercise in alibis and getting your story <laughs> straight. Because the only person is that, a, can is believe, that a novel? An exercise in alibis? Yeah. That sounds like a novel. <laughs> Someone should that. write that. Um, yes. Mm. But yeah, so it's because. It's just ridiculous because the only one you really believe is Chin Ho because when they at, when Steve asks him, well, where were you on this Tuesday night like six weeks ago? And he's mm-hmm. like, well, I guess I was home. Well, mm-hmm. can you prove it? Well, yeah, sure. I, I would have gotten off work. There was no church. There was no bowling, no, mm-hmm. no fights. Yeah. So I was probably at home. He doesn't know. Most people don't know. But when you have yes. Amaru giving these exact details, well, I picked him up and he was driving this particular car and it was at such and such a time at Alamoana Park and the moon was high and it was 72 degrees. I mean, he had like all of this, these details. Mm-hmm. Well, who mm-hmm. hooked you up with him? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> really? Yes. I can re- you can yeah. remember minute details about this person. 
mm. that that you you know gave money to, but you can't remember who hooked you up. That's that's so fun, especially when Steve at the end he nails Summers. He knows that he's lying because mm. Summers can he opened this account for this John Lee Sung or whatever his name was that was supposed to be Chin Ho in disguise, and he can describe Chin Ho perfectly, knows exactly what he wore, but he can't remember any of the other accounts he opened in that time period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. having worked at a credit union and having <laughs> been called in by the police to identify someone who passed a bad check, let me tell you how difficult that is. <laughs> mm, yes. Because she did it through the drive through mm. And the mm-hmm. only reason why I was able to identify her was because prior to that, she had come in and she had cast checks with the person that had the account. So I had seen her before. But this time mm-hmm. she had done it through the drive-thru without his knowledge of what she was doing. But because it's the drive-thru and she's all the way out there, I can't see who else is in the car. So the fact that he could, like, I couldn't tell you what she wore that day or what time it was mm-hmm. or any of that. But he can tell you Chinese, of course. 5'10", 5'11", 230. You knew he was lying just by the preciseness mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And and two, there's there's that thing where 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 back then at the, at this time period, like being a bank president, was like I I it was something you would hear on occasion. It was like, oh, I'll be a doctor, or I'll be a lawyer, or maybe a bank president, or whatever the heck he was. You know, a high official in a bank. You know, nowadays we think of someone working in a bank. I, to me, and I'm like, oh, whatever. But but back then it was like, oh, maybe I can be. A bank president, you know, or, and 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 so there's like so we, you know, the other people we may not believe, but like you said, this guy we're gonna believe. But then the more McGarrett talks to him, and he's like, oh yeah, the right hand, oh the left hand, the da da da. The the more he talks to him, the more it's like, okay, yeah, you're you're digging yourself a hole, sir, and um, and McGarrett's got you, he's got you good. Say that seventy four people have opened new accounts in the last six weeks. Yes, we do a lot of business. Do you remember all of it? No, hardly. Do you remember any of them? Well, let's see. Um... How about... Let's see, how about John R. McIntosh, for instance? $4,200 initial deposit 10 days ago. What did he look like? How old was he? What was he wearing, Mr. Summers? Was he right-handed or left-handed? Well, I can't remember everybody. But you can remember a man you saw once six weeks ago? Now, I want a straight answer, Mr. Summers. I want the truth. I've been telling you the truth. You better be, because I'm going to give you a chance to prove it. I'm going to get these people in here, and I'm going to ask you to pick them out of a lineup. Very well. Thank you. That's all. And uh, I'd give some thought to the uh, penalty for perjury in this state, if I were you. I, 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 like, I didn't realize Ch- uh, Chin Ho had so many kids... I, I I only counted like six, but yeah, I only counted are the other ones six. Grown up or? I don't know where the other two are if they're older and have graduated because 
Um, we have this is the first time we've seen them throughout the whole series. Oh wow! Okay. And we will see Chin Ho's family again uh, in much later seasons. And the only reason why I remember this is because um, his daughter is dating Eric Estrada in the show. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Eric Estrada makes an appearance <laughs> before know. ships, and he turns wow. out to be a real jerk. Spoiler alert there. Mm. But so we get to see the the Kelly family again. But yeah, this is the first time we've seen them and. I'm not exactly sure the age ranges, but yeah, because I only counted six as well, but they said eight, so. Mm-hmm. I was desperately trying to figure out what they were watching on TV, but it was just a series of, like, cartoon boing, 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 boom, wow, kind of noises. And I was like, and he says when he comes home, he says, like, oh, it's a bit late, isn't it? Well, Mom said we could watch, and I thought my first thought was, are they watching, like, the Flintstones or something. You know, I was trying to figure out, I was trying to think of something that they may have been watching. But I, I, I don't know, maybe probably Looney Tunes, I would guess. Or Yeah, late night showing of Looney Tunes? Maybe. I don't know, they were crazy back then. They watched all kinds of nutty stuff. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it was 1970, so. Yeah, I guess. Well, it could, yeah, it could have been like a, yeah. I don't know, any of the, any of the uh, Top Cat. Oh, yeah, they were watching it, was, some, it was Jabber Jaws, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, it was, yeah. What, what? There were lots. There was lots of crazy stuff. Um, it would. Uh, well, I was gonna say it may have been like Archie, but uh, I don't think Archie and the gang and Sabrina had that many goofy noises. And then, well, maybe they did. I don't know. But uh, but it was it was great to see all the. I'm. I, I, do we know what time it is when he comes home and he says it's late? Is it like they're not up at like midnight or something watching cartoons? Are they? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's so hard to tell. It's probably like nine. I would think so. Yeah, because yeah, some of the younger ones. And then, then you have the other ones that... Tilda, the little one who's supposed to be in bed, mm-hmm. that comes running out. So, And Tim's on the phone. Tim should not be on the phone too late at <laughs> night. I don't care if he is a teenager. Yeah, yeah, come on, Tim. And there's and, and like I said, there, there's like the... the when he he goes on the phone in the final scene, it's a it's a lovely closing scene, um, where because uh, c- there's the the sort of discussion between um, McGarrett and Chin Ho at one point about you know so when you go to pick Tim up at whatever it is that's happening you know why do you go so early or why do you stay so or whatever and you, you could tell um, that that Chin Ho is having some troubles with the teenage Tim sort of being rebellious, and he really doesn't wanna bring that up in in this and, and, and so McGarrett is doing the best he can to not do that which which is very admirable uh, but that's McGarrett and but but then in 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 the closing scene where like everything's okay and I, oh, I got my job back I'm not going to prison they caught the oh I'm sorry if this is a spoiler they do catch the bad guy I don't I don't mean to ruin anything <laughs> but, but but so so like but at the very end there's a moment where um and and all the family's like oh thank goodness and suddenly Tim picks up a phone picks up the phone just kind of like does some dialing puts the phone to his ear and he's not like it, it, it he and he says hey come on i'm on the phone and everyone's like okay tim they kind of you know let him go on the phone but when he's standing there on the phone it looks like he's never you know it, it looks like someone handed him a banana and he put it on his head <laughs> you know it's like he's he's standing there with the phone to his ear but it looks like he doesn't know like, you know, does it go under my arm? Does it go, do I put it between my knees and I run up and down the, the, the hall with it? You know, it, it, it looks, he looks uncomfortable with it at his ear. Like he almost does like, it, like if someone talks out of it, he's going to be surprised. 
They're d- dead. I dialed seven numbers and someone's <laughs> talking. What is this? Well, oh my God. The calls are coming from inside our house. You know, it's a, he looks so uncomfortable when he does it. And maybe that's why Chin Ho is so confused by his son. Because it's like, you know what? I'm older than you. And we had the phones where you had to like turn the crank. <laughs> You know, and there was like you had to pick up. You know, you had to pick up the one that you put it to your ear, and there was like the thing you talked into. You know, we didn't have all the fancy stuff, and you know, we had to call Sarah up. You know, on the on the um, on the switchboard kind of thing. And I know how phones work. Why doesn't my teenage son know how a phone works? I'm using the phone. You gotta. Well, to be fair, to be fair, the actor playing Tim. This was his only credit. So. He might have been a little um, nervous, maybe maybe a little uneducated about how to act like you're using the phone. You know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe someone told him like, "Don't go too broad. Don't go too big." Yeah. And so he was like, "Well, well, then I won't put it up to my ear and talk into it. I'll just hold it near my ear, and people will and and you know, someone's like, "This isn't silent film, Tim. This is." You need to, you need to pretend because even when you see him in the beginning and he like opens a curtain and leans out with the phone, I'm on the phone and it's like I'm not convinced. <laughs> I I think you're just you're hiding in like that nook where like mom keeps all the food or something behind the curtain and you're like I'm on the but you're not really on the phone you're just standing there thinking about life. Well, maybe hey. maybe he's pretending to be on the phone because he doesn't want anyone to know he has no friends. <laughs> You I mean, there's all sorts of answers to this question. <laughs> there's, there's lots. That's a, and it's, I mean, I, I love that Chin Ho is so, um, um, he's, you know, he's just let, you know, let, um, t- uh, come on, come on, mother. I, I forget what he calls his wife, but I'm just going to say mother because she has so many kids. You know, c- come on, mother. Um, Tim's pretending like he's on the phone again. Let's give him the space. Yes, Tim, you're on the phone. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Come on, just back up. Here we go. Talk to you later, Tim. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless Tim. I hope he got into a good college. I bet, I bet he did. Oh, may I, may I say one one thing? Yes. That, um, and I've said this before, I love miniskirts. But we're at the point in time here where everybody is beginning to wear miniskirts. And so you, you get that thing where, um, you know, like when miniskirts began... And I've said this before on many podcasts. So if, you, if you've heard my, my miniskirt, my minicast... <laughs> my six episode mini no but but because like when mini when mini skirts started and get smart is a good show to use for mini skirts because barbara feldon skirts like get shorter as the show goes along um and but but when mini skirts started they were they were basically they were like models and 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 younger women but by the time you got to when this episode was airing like your mom was wearing a mini skirt you know grandma would go out in a mini skirt. So it's interesting, like when, when, when Dano goes in the bank, there's a woman who's probably not looking at her best in a mini skirt standing in line. But then as he walks to talk to Summers there, he passes a lady in a red dress who is, forgive me, va 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 voom. So I love this. The only fashion thing I understand is, is the mini skirt. I know, you know, when it began, when it turned around and went back down again that kind of thing but it's, I, I love this period like where it's just like oh grandma you're going out in that okay yeah 
That's great. Well, Dan, everybody's wearing it. I, I guess, I guess, Graham. Okay, thanks. Wow, wow. Okay, you know, and and so I, I like, I like, I like this time period for um for uh, for that sort of thing. I don't mean to sound like a perv when I say it. I'm talking specifically very. I'm talking as a social critic. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but it was something I noticed when I saw it. I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, wow. we're in the time period because, and what's great about this show is because it ran for 12 years, so we get yes. the end of the 60s all the way through the 70s to 1980. So we mm. get to see the evolution of fashions, particularly island fashion throughout that time. Right now we are yes. in the beginning of the, we're probably like at the peak, just at the beginning of the decline. What everybody's wearing are those really short shift dress dresses. Those are the mm-hmm. mini's skirts that they're wearing. They're okay. shift dresses, okay. which I love. Okay. They have okay. amazing patterns, amazing colors. You see nothing like it today. It today's mm-hmm. fashion is just completely boring compared to <laughs> island fashion in 1970. So as we go through the rest yeah. of the series, you're going to see the skirts start to get a little bit longer <laughs> as we yes. go. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I always say, like, one, one show you can use, too, is The Brady Bunch. Yes. Where everyone, including Carol, they're wearing short skirts until you get to Series 5, which is 73, 74. And then, like, one of the opening episodes of that season, there's a scene where Jan and Marsha are, um, whatever, I, I don't, are they in high school yet? I forget, wherever, wherever they are where the series ends, there's a scene where, like, the two of them are walking and talking, and the first thing you notice is that their skirts have gone from being, like, high in the thigh to being at their knee, and around the knee. It's like, when did that happen? It was like, over the summer, every woman decided, no, nah, that, that crap ain't happening anymore. Drop them. Bring them down. Bring them down. We're not, no, that's too high. Nope. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the way the fashion went, and I'm calling dresses, uh, skirts. So you know, I'm not the best fashion guy. <laughs> well, you are observant about legs, so you do <laughs> notice when you stop seeing as much leg. Yes, you do. You notice. You do notice. And I'm also. I'm a fan of Doctor Who too, which ran from the early '60s to the late '80s. So you see the skirts go up and then come back down, and then in like the mid '80s, they kind of go up again a bit and stuff. So. That's not the reason why I watch the show, but you see that as you watch it. I can't. I can't be observant. I'm sorry. Yes, you can be observant, Dan. We appreciate your observations. <laughs> All right, look, I'll lay it out for you once more. A, the recent scandal with the Public Utilities Commission has got the governor terrified in the whole subject of corruption. B, we learn in law school that the police can only react in a limited number of ways to any given situation. They're predictable. That makes them vulnerable. Ipso facto, QED. A and B together puts them out of the picture and gives us a lot more room to operate. So I wanted to ask, because I love overly complicated evil plots. Like, that's my favorite thing. Remember when we were watching Green Hornet and the guy wanted to steal a nuclear bomb and so he faked an alien invasion? Those are the kinds of broadly theatrical plots that I love. This isn't quite Mm -hmm. that theatrical. But it does have a lot of moving parts, which mm-hmm. just ups the risk of it breaking, which ultimately it does, because mm-hmm. you can't have that many moving parts and not have bad things happen. But the best yes. part about this plot, I think, besides Martin Sheen's mustache, he's looking very Emilio <laughs> Estevez in this episode. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, it, but is that the entire point of this project 
as he calls it, is to get rid of 5-0 so they can do more crimes, I guess. They're never really specific about the point yes. beyond this. It's just literally we're just doing this to get rid of 5-0, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. Because we, we talk about the, the other business, the other crime stuff very vaguely. And mm-hmm. so you don't know, you don't have exact details about it. And I love that, you know, we're just going to pay these people to basically, in the case especially, Amaru, to take a dive, because mm-hmm. he's going to jail, Yeah. to to plant this information, and then uh, Vern, or whatever his name is, faking the hitchhiking, or hitchhiking, hi- hijacking, with mm-hmm. um, Ray, who, at one point, Martin Sheen tells him to make it loud, so everybody mm. hears it, and so he yeah. chases this guy, Vern, down the road while shooting a shotgun out the window... So it attracts the police. So the the squad car is like way behind them, but catching up. Vern, he gets the signal and gently runs his car off the road <laughs> to make it look good. Yeah, into a, like a bush. Yeah, to a bush. Yeah, so not, not he didn't even tough. scratch no. the paint going in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then in a movie, for a minute I thought he was going to kill Vern when I first saw mm. it. But then he shoots out the window and he tells Vern no tricks. So... Vern can go to five O headquarters, I guess, and I guess the whole ultimate goal was to pick Chin Ho out of a lineup. But again, he says mm-hmm. he doesn't know who he's working for. He just had five thousand dollars mm-hmm. of yes. money to go somewhere to they you know can- for the payoff or whatever. But he yes. has no idea who he's working for, and he's like, "Well, it's you know, I knew it was bigger than me, so I figured the less I knew, the better." Really, mm. really, it's. <laughs> Because it's a crazy uh, sort of um, fairly complicated plot that could have used one more draft. That could have had someone just say, hey, what if they ask this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because there, there's a lot of... Like like that, that the the scene where the guy goes into the pulls over and goes into the bush. You you can hear when he goes into the bush, there's some nice you know sound of him going into a bush. But it's not too loud. It's almost like you, you think like the Foley people maybe did it really loud and the director was like, no, 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 he's not he's not really going into the... I know he is, but he's not really... You know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I do like... Yeah, I, I, I like the... It's, it's, it's kind of even better the second time when you already know what all the connections are and you see all of it and you go, wow, they really like... I, I would love it if there was like... Um, a precursor like episode where it showed all of them like like going through maybe with like scripts or something like in a warehouse pretending to do stuff yes 230 pounds <laughs> five foot nine five foot ten sorry five foot ten five, you know and all these people okay you go over here and then we'll do this but there's it's it's it is it is gloriously um it's it's not it's it's not like the great escape complicated, but it's pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, and you can kind of tell that basically this is just sort of the structure of it because the most important part is framing Shin Ho for taking bribes and mm-hmm. later for something worse. Because it's like they didn't get like a whole lot of thought into it. We just need these people to say <laughs> these things yes. to make Shin Ho look bad. Mm-hmm. So it's... Yeah, and you kind of forgive him for that because, let's face it, Cam Fong did a really, really good job playing Chin Ho being so mm-hmm. devastated. Because when he goes home and he talks to his wife about it, and I yeah, love his love wife scene, yeah. so, so, mm-hmm. so much. 
as mm-hmm. you know, he says that he got accused for taking bribes, and she's like, "Really? How much?" And he's like, twelve hundred dollars." <laughs> and she goes, "That's not enough." Yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, I absolutely love that they have that relationship where she can, where they can joke. But then mm-hmm. she realizes that he's being serious and he's actually quite upset about it. And she's very supportive. Mm-hmm. And and so, but you get to, I mean, it's Chin Ho in peril, basically. And you get to yes. see Cam Fong play that. And he's just so good. Just so he's very a, good. And there's there's a feeling, too, that may, like if, if he were maybe a single man uh, just on his own, he w- you know, he wouldn't be kind of screwing up the lie detector test like he does. He wouldn't be so sweaty whenever McGarrett is talking to him, you know. But because he's got so many kids and because there's so many who depend on him, he knows, he, he can see like right away that things, he can see how things can go south very quickly, even on just the smallest amount of like evidence or, or proof or something like that. And, and you, you can see it and he carries it with him as he goes. And, and so when you get to the end, and again, not a spoiler, they win, you, you feel, ah, just a big sigh of relief that thank goodness, let's get, let's get on with catching. Is Gavin McLeod out again? Let's catch him again. <laughs> yeah, crisis averted. You know, let's, yes, let's yes. celebrate and then get back to work. Yeah, so because it gets pretty serious because obviously Summers, after Summers gets interrogated by Steve, because this is Steve and he is defending one of his own, and that's when I love Steve best because he's mm-hmm. like a total Malinois. He will go after whoever's trying to hurt one of his guys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yes. love it. And he tore Summers apart. So Summers goes and talks to Martin Sheen and his mustache and says... <laughs> you know, I want out because the heat's getting too high. And at first, uh, Martin Sheen says no. But then he's like, how about a bonus? And Summers is like, well, yes, I have a price. I can be bought. And he mm-hmm. stupidly leaves like, great, I'll just get some more money out of this and that'll help me be qu- more quiet. When in <laughs> actuality, it's like, yes, you're going to be quiet because you're going to be more dead. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's you. You wonder. So as you as you watch it, like how many of how how many of the people who showed up, who have the description of, of Chin Ho and and were were pre set when it all began, and how many were improvised? And like that one with Summers, like that's an improvised one, you know, where it's like, okay, let's um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take out Summers, and I think we can get Chin Ho to uh, get involved in this one somehow. Yeah. Yeah, because they end up framing him for his murder by... What do they do? He's up. He can't... He can't sleep. So they call... They call him. Somebody calls him anonymously to say they have information and and take him out away from the house so there's no witnesses so he doesn't have an alibi for Summers' death. But the thing is, is that while Chin Ho's there, it is clearly after dark. It is in the middle of the mm-hmm. night. The family is asleep. He lets the phone ring like three or four times before he yes, answers that, it. What? And, and, and I thought one of the, yeah, with one of the main plot lines being that Tim is on the phone all the time. You would think Tim would have grabbed that immediately. You would have thought. Yeah. He, he wouldn't have known what to do with it, but he would have picked it up. <laughs> but you would have figured he slept with just, the phone next to him, you know. <laughs> it's true, yes. Yes, he just picks up and goes, oh, phone. The phone rang for me again. Mom. Yeah, but the phone yeah. is ringing in the middle of the night that's going to wake up the whole house, I would think. Yes. yeah. It yeah. did back in the day when, I mean, I can remember having those old school oh, yeah. 
the the heavy push button or and or rotary phones that we had yeah, back the, in the day, those the ringers on those were not gentle. They were not subtle. No. The phone, yeah, the the phone. I mean, like the um, like the house I grew up in as a teen. I mean, we had a phone in the kitchen, we had a phone in our den. My parents had a phone in their room, and we had a phone in the basement, uh, which was, you know, you 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 took your choice. You ran. It was a split level. You ran up. You ran up a short flight to the kitchen, or you ran down a slightly longer flight into the basement, depending upon what phone you wanted to talk on. But yeah, I mean, wherever you were in the house, when the phone rang, if it rang at midnight. You heard it. Yeah, there was... And you heard it and you were worried Yeah, when you heard it. Yeah, that was the other thing, too. No phone calls happened in the middle of the night that were a good thing. No, 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 no. Yeah. Even Tim's friends... Tim's... And I put that in quotes. Tim's friends. (laughs) um, You know, call in the middle of the night. Am I under arrest? Not yet, but I've got to question you for the record. Come on, let's go shoot. Good night, Mr. Kelly. So, shall we talk the ending? Yes, yes. Okay, so this is the spoiler alert. Normally, I don't give away the endings, but I always like to discuss endings with Dan because I like to know what he thinks of them. So, here is your spoiler mm-hmm. alert. You want to skip ahead a few five minutes, maybe? Yeah, I can. While we have to try this to look out. here. It's okay. I'll try to look here five minutes from about now. Yeah. Good luck with that. Okay. I mean, it doesn't yeah, have to. It doesn't have I'll to be exact. It. But, okay, okay. Yeah. Wh- I'll yell out when we get to five. Okay. All right, so the ending involves 5-0 being taken off the case because mm-hmm. Chin-Ho gets suspended. And Chin-Ho is uh, under suspicion for Summer's murder. So the governor, he warned Steve about this earlier in the episode. He decides to remove them and have another agency take over the case. Mm-hmm. And he would send it over in writing. And I guess Steve decides to play a little bit outside of the rules and while they're waiting for it to come over in writing he decides that the best defense is a good offense and they go after martin sheen and his mustache and then carl brome who is the guy that martin sheen's working with Mm -hmm. and dismantle them by basically planting the seeds of suspicion with carl Mm -hmm. brome doing it again with eddie eddie callow that's what his name is martin sheen (laughs) which in two really great scenes because first of all, you have Danny going over to Carl Brom's house and saying, mm-hmm. your phone's going to start ringing because we're picking up every petty crook that we think is linked to you and mm-hmm. basically dismantling your organization that way. And then Steve shows up to lunch with Martin Sheen, gives him his card and says, yeah, Carl's probably not going to be happy with the way things are going. I've seen him change tactics in the middle of a gunfight. Good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and leaves. And so when Martin Sheen goes back to his office and finds it ransacked, he decides he's going to go to the mainland. And as he leaves his office, two shadowy figures start chasing him and shooting at him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and they they chase him onto a great, like, yeah, building site. Yes, they chase him through, like, I, I don't know if it's building or if it's being renovated or what, but it's under mm-hmm, construction. Mm-hmm. Until he sees the cops pull up and he starts yelling and screaming, hey, police. <laughs> and he runs down and asks McGarrett for help. And McGarrett says, I can't remember what he said. Oh, that he's going, well, he's basically under arrest, but he's yes, yeah, he's going to have to give up everything. Mm-hmm. And they take him into custody. And out come our two shadowy figures. And it's Danny and Kono. 
Oh! Oh! <laughs> so you think that he's being chased because they've been setting things up. You think he's being chased by Carl Brom's men, but in reality, mm. it's our own 5-0 guys playing a little bit. Oh, boy. A lot of bit outside of the law. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely love that ending because, on one hand, Steve is very dedicated to the rules and justice and law and order and stuff like that. But it also shows just how far he will go to protect Mm -hmm. one of his guys that he knows is innocent. And you don't, because he does, and he does say it earlier in the episode when Kono protests Chin being (laughs) suspended. He tells, you know, Kono tells him, you you know, how can you do that to him? And he tells Kono, if I didn't love you, I'd punch you in the mouth. (laughs) This is the embodiment of that. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. I love you, but I will punch you in the mouth. And I will also break a few laws, bend a lot of rules (laughs) for you. Yes. What did you think of the ending? I I love the ending because um, it just has that thing where for about... um, I want to say because like the the episode's about the episode's like fifty fifty one minutes long, and for the first forty minutes or so, the guys are going by the book. They're you know they're they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing, and because the two bad guys are are slightly ahead of them, they're getting you know they're everything McGarrett and the boys are doing is just coming up useless. And then I love the fact that the moment they say okay, let's play the way they play for a little bit, they resolve it in ten minutes. I ab- I absolutely love that. That it's like you know they sat down. And they said, "You do this, you do this, we'll do this. It'll be over." And I, and I like the fact that, um, like you said, you know, McGarrett, lo- you know, loves the guys he works with. You know, he'll 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 go only so far going along with this stuff with 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 Chin Ho before you know he's going to say, "Okay, let's just let's let's play like this for just a little bit and see where we get." And then at the end of it, they win, and they do it quickly. And I, and I, I kind of like the, um, as after, after like 40 minutes of bringing these people in and hearing their testimony and doing this and this and back and forth, in 10 minutes, they just do it all and wrap it all up. And I thought, I thought, I think it's a lovely ending. I like the economy of it. And the scene with Mr. Sheen running around there in this building is, um, is slightly harrowing. Um, for him, I mean, we don't particularly care what happens to him, although I love his mustache. But but it's it's um it's like hair that like one point where he like kind of almost runs up a wall and he's like hanging from a girder and and stuff like that. It's um it's it's a it's a nicely I think I think it's a nicely done ending and it gets and it gets um it gets everything back to normal where it should be. And so I was I was I was um I was glad to see that. Yeah, and of course, as you mentioned, the the victory dance of the Kellys <laughs> in the house when they when he gets the call saying that he's going to be back in tomorrow morning. I mean, it's just how can you not feel their joy, even as as mm-hmm. Tim takes the phone and tells you, "Well, I told you so. Now get out of my way. I have a social life <laughs> to pretend to have." <laughs> I've got a girlfriend in Canada <laughs> who I have to talk to. Exactly. Let's take a quick break from the chat to take a look at our guest cast. As I said, Eddie Calhoun is played by Martin Sheen in his mustache. We'll see him in one more episode. He was President Josiah Bartlett on The West Wing. He was Robert Hansen on Grace and Frankie. 
He was Martin Goodson on Anger Management, and he was the voice of Sly Sludge on the Captain Planet cartoon. He also turned up in episodes of Route 66, Naked City, Outer Limits, My Three Sons, Flipper, Mission Impossible, Mod Squad, The FBI, The Rookies, Cannon, Columbo, Streets of San Francisco, and Two and a Half Men. And he was in the movies Judas and the Black Messiah, Rules Don't Apply, The Amazing Spider-Man, Imagine That, The Departed, Bobby, Catch Me If You Can, Spawn, The War at Home, Gettysburg, Cadence, Wall Street, Firestarter, Dead Zone, Gandhi, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, Badlands, Rage, Catch-22, and of course, Apocalypse Now. And he was in the TV movies, The Cliff, Goodbye Raggedy Ann, That Certain Summer, Crime Club, The Execution of Private Slovic, Sweet Hostage, News at Eleven, Guilty Until Proven Innocent, One of Her Own, Project Alf, Voyage of Terror, and Babylon 5, The River of Souls. Bank manager Austin Summers was played by George Petrie. He was Sid on Mad About You, Mr. Waterton on Herman's Head, Harve Smithfield on Dallas, and Don Rudy Atupo on Wise Guy. He was also in episodes of The Honeymooners, The Jackie Gleason Show, both the 50s and 60s version, Surfside 6, 77 Sunset Strip, Twilight Zone, Hawaiian Eye, Perry Mason, Andy Griffith, Bonanza, Adam's Family, Gomer Pyle, The Munsters, The Wild Wild West, Ironside, The Streets of San Francisco, Maud, Black Sheep Squadron, Emergency, Little House on the Prairie, House Calls, Quincy, Facts of Life, Dear John, Night Court, and L.A. Law. And he was in the movies Folks, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Baby Boo, He Rides Tall, HUD, and Gypsy. And he was in the TV movies Murder on Flight 502, The Deadliest Season, A Fire in the Sky, and The Day After, which scarred my entire generation. Carl Brome was played by Larry Ronson. We'll see him in one more episode. Mrs. Kelly was played by Evelyn Carlson. This is her only credit. Ray was played by Jeff Heiss. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was also in three episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O reboot. He turned up in episodes of Murder, She Wrote, Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, Step by Step, Baywatch, and Lost. He was in the movie Princess Kaiulani, and he was in the TV movie Escape from Atlantis. Vern was played by Jerry Cox. This is his second of four episodes. Amaru was played by Derek Mao. This is his second of four episodes. Tim Kelly was played by Leighton Lee. This is his only credit. Dave Garland was played by Edward Sheehan. This is his sixth of 15 episodes. The Polygraph Examiner Stone. He was played by Glenn Cannon. This is his first of 32 episodes, probably best known as Doc Eibold on Magnum P.I. He was also in episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, The Outer Limits, Combat, Jake and the Fat Man, and Lost. He was in the movies Picture Bride and Mad Dog Cole, and he was in the TV movie Miracle Landing. The HBD sergeant is, of course, Douglas Mossman. This is his fifth of 27 episodes. And Craig was Clarence Garcia. This is his third of eight episodes. Our writer, Preston Wood, like I said, this is his only episode of Hawaii Five-0, but he also wrote two episodes of The Wild Wild West, six episodes of Dragnet 67, seven episodes of Gunsmoke, 19 episodes of Bonanza, 12 episodes of Adam 12, 25 episodes of Emergency, three episodes of Quincy Emmy, and two episodes of The New Adams Family. 
And that is Cry Lie. Just a quick little note that I wanted to add that did not come up in chat with Dan is that in this episode, we actually have some reused footage. There's a couple of scenes where they reuse footage from earlier episodes. The most noticeable is Austin Summers' execution scene. It's actually reused footage from the assassination scene from the episode All the King's Horses when the assassin attempts to kill James Gregory's character, but he ends up killing someone who is breaking into James Gregory's office. So, something to look out for when you give this episode a watch. Kono, if I didn't love you, I'd punch you right in the mouth. Dano? How is he? Bad. Were you in school? Uh, were you close? Yeah. Didn't make a move without each other. Marjorie, too. Been in love with Lou since, since 10th grade. Steve? Got something. Headquarters just confirmed it. Morgan worked midnight to eight shift last night. There's been a murder, remember? Everyone, including cops, get checked out. I remember. I also checked with the coroner's office. They place in the time of death between 2 and 3 a.m. Anything from the lab? Not yet. They want to check out everything. Said it may be some time. All right, stay close. If you hear anything at all, Jen, let me know right away. Lou, Mr. McGarrett. He's resting. We finish our shift in a half hour. We'd like to help on our free time. Well, nothing to go on yet, but if we get a break, I'll take you up on that offer. We'll be ready, sir. A guy who kills a cop's wife is no different than a cop killer. No different than any. Episode 21, Most Likely to Murder, air date February 11th, 1970. Directed by Nicholas Colasanto, this is his fourth of four episodes. And written by Robert Hamner, this is his second of two episodes. HPD is working a living room murder scene. Dano arrives to find the victim is old friend and HPD officer Lou Morgan's wife, Marjorie. Lou bursts in and sees his wife. He kneels beside her and asks why. Outside, Steve and Che Fong find footprints, which Che takes a cast of. Danny tells Steve that Lou isn't doing well. He's known both Lou and Marjorie since high school, and he's not surprised Lou is devastated by his wife's murder. Jin confirms Lou's on-duty alibi and that the time of death is between 2 and 3 in the morning. Danny takes a mild offense to Lou being a suspect, but Steve reminds him that it's part of the investigation. As Steve goes to leave, two uniforms pull up and volunteer to help when they're off-duty. As far as they're concerned, killing a cop's wife is the same as killing a cop. At the office, Steve looks at the footprint cast. Everything about them is so standard that the only real clue gleaned from them is the man's weight. Danny comes in with five sets of prints from the Morgan house, two of which are unknown. The unknowns are sent off to the mainland for ID. Lou arrives and offers to help in the investigation, but Steve declines. Lou says he'll go crazy without doing something to help find his wife's killer, but Steve is firm. There is no room in the investigation for emotion. Lou leaves distraught, and Danny follows him, taking him back to his apartment. 
Danny fixes Lou a drink while Lou pines for the good old days, comparing his life to an extended batting slump. He blamed everyone else for his trouble until he ran out of people. The only good thing in his life was Marjorie. Danny tries to bolster his friend's spirits, but all he wants to do is help in the investigation. Danny says he'll talk to Steve about it, and Lou's mood oddly shifts. Lanika Hikio shows up to the Morgan house, entering with a key where he's ambushed by Kono and Chen Ho. Turns out he's been seeing Marjorie on the sly. He gives a statement at the office saying that he didn't kill her. The last time he saw her was two weeks prior when she broke it off with him. He came by the house to try to patch things up. He points the finger at her number one boyfriend, but unfortunately he doesn't know his name. Lonnie isn't quite off the hook yet. They hold him on suspicion. Steve shows up to the graveside service to fill Danny in on the Lonnie development. Danny is in disbelief that Marjorie was cheating on Lou and can't fathom telling him about it. Steve doesn't think Lonnie is the killer, but he leaves before telling Lou anything. Danny lies to Lou, saying there's been no developments. ID on the Unknown Prince comes back from the mainland. One is Lonnie's, the other belongs to Gary Oliver, and boy does he have a rap sheet. Steve and Danny go to his house. Inside, Annette is trying to get Gary to open up about what's bothering him. Just then, Steve busts in and Gary busts out, jumping out a window. After issuing an APB, Steve questions Annette about Gary. At first, she defends him, claiming he was with her on the night in question, until Steve asks her to sign a sworn statement. Then she changes her tune. Steve and Danny go to talk to Lou. Lou claims not to know Gary, but Steve tells him that Marjorie did. The news of the affair upsets Lou, who ends up being unhelpful. Outside, Danny accuses Steve of interrogating his friend despite his alibi. Steve points out that the alibi isn't airtight, and Lou had 36 minutes during the time of death in which he was unaccounted for. If Lou knew about the affairs, what would he do? Chin Ho can't find Gary, but the APB does turn up some women who know him, including Gloria Warren. She talks to Steve, telling him that Gary put her in the hospital after draining her bank account. She points him in the direction of his latest flame, Mrs. Karen Hadwell. Steve makes arrangements to speak with Mrs. Hadwell, but she's not at home when he arrives. The servant claims it was an emergency. Steve leaves his card and asks that she call him. Lou shows up to Annette's house, flashing his badge so she'll open the door. Annette isn't keen on talking to any more cops, but Lou isn't in the mood to ask nicely. He roughs her up, demanding to know where Gary Oliver is. Annette swears that she doesn't know, so Lou leaves a message. He's going to kill Gary like Gary killed his wife. Now, before I ask you what you thought about this episode, I need to tell Mm. you some things. Number one... This is the episode that I picked as my favorite for season two, and it was also directed by uh, Nicholas Colasanto. Yes, yes. Best known as Coach from Cheers. Yes. And it was written by Robert Hamner, who created SWAT. So I want you to keep those things in mind when Mm. you're giving me your opinion about this episode. (laughs) I'm not saying you should say nice things. I'm just saying, keep it in mind. <laughs> so, what did you think of this episode, Dan? I think I um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I think it's a, I think it's a good. I, I actually think this is an episode that um, I liked more the second time, just because I think Tom Skerritt's so Tom Skerritt's so good in the episode, and some of the things he does. The first time through, when I was watching it, I was I was watching it from 
I won't spoil it. I'll just say I was watching it from sort of one point of view. And then when you watch the second time, you're watching it from the point of view of having seen to the end. And his performance takes on a different feel to it, which I really liked. I think, I mean, over overall, like the, the story isn't... Um, uh, the story isn't isn't the most um, uh, it it isn't it, it isn't the newest newest thing in in cop and crime stories, but it it's um, I I like the fact that Dano has the connection with um, um, Tom Skerritt's character. Uh, that's always nice whenever they can they can make it personal. Um, it always works, especially in a show like this where I mean, back back then like this time like they didn't do that that much with shows like this so it's always nice although quite a few times when i watch y50 they've done that so i could be lying when i say that <laughs> but but i like that they do that and um and i i like the um just just the, that that first sequence when well that sequence when, when tom scarrett's character who i'm forgetting the name of but he speaks about himself in third person throughout the episode but i forget his name uh lou morgan um, uh lou morgan yes does lou morgan get a chance what does Lou Morgan get? And um, that scene with um, Tom Skerritt like talking to Dano for what looks like the first time in years, where he's talking about how they used to play ball and how he, he married Marge. There is a point where he says something like, you know, and this happened, this happened, and then, and there's a pause, I married Marge. And I thought, I love that sitcom. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> was Jim Backus in that? And, um, I think it only it, ran one season, though. It only ran one season. Oh, the, but the great thing is, when I was watching it the second time, I had the subtitles on because sometimes I catch things that I missed um, uh, the first time. And and it's like when you watch the subtitles, it's like you know he'll say da 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 da. Subtitles go away, and then in big all caps, I married Marge. <laughs> so oh, with William Bendix. Oh, that was fantastic! Oh wow, Wally Cox was in that too. I couldn't, I, I couldn't get enough of that. Yeah. Um. Uh. So so um. Uh. And and he's he's really great in it, and he's got like the early like the early Tom Skerritt face. Like whenever they do close-ups of him, is is like um, is like early. Not now. This is this obviously is not quite the same, but like. You you when you would see Clint Howard when he was younger, and you think, and you see Ron Howard, you know when he was a little older, you think, oh Clint Clint's gonna grow into that face, but Clint never did. Clint always looked like that, and that was part of the Clint the joy of Clint Howard's face. Whereas Tom Skerritt in this episode, whenever they do close-ups, he looks a little mental, <laughs> and but but you know like when you think of Tom Skerritt from years later. You know, even a few years later in the Night Stalker, the Kolchak episode he was in, I think he plays like like five years later, he plays like a politician or something who like, I want to say he starts fires, but I could be mixing two or three Kolchaks together there. No, um, I think that's the one where he has the demon dog. Okay, all right, yeah, um, and 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 but even in that, like he's grown into the face. I think he, his is a face that needs facial hair, <laughs> and if it doesn't have facial hair, he looks a little. He looks a little screwy, and and um, at it's it's great because at first you feel so when he shows up and his wife's dead you feel so bad for him and then as the episode goes along and he becomes more committed to finding who killed his wife it becomes a bit of a um, wow okay maybe you're 
going a little overboard here and i think overall it's i think it's a, it's a strong episode um uh and i know we're not going to talk about the ending now but um I think it's got a strong ending too and I like the introduction of all sort of the the random characters who kind of it almost has a bit of um uh there was a TV movie made around the same time called The House on Green Apple Road um with Christopher George and Janet Leigh mm-hmm. um where um uh Janet Leigh it plays uh uh she's a housewife who is killed and they can't find her body and Christopher George begins to investigate her life. She was married to an insurance salesman and begins to investigate her life. And the more he begins to investigate her life, the more he learns that she wasn't happy in the life that looked like a perfect suburban life. And she was actually sleeping around quite a bit and going here, there, and everything. It's a beautiful, it's one of my all-time favorite TV movies. And this kind of reminded me a bit of that um, because there is kind of a nutty husband in it too and this and they were made around the same time so it has kind of this 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 same feel of like what looked like something that was lovely and something tragic has happened the more it's revealed that something was there was something under the skin there that was just tearing everything apart and something something bad is going on and um and i i think this episode does a really Nice job. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know why I don't watch more Hawaii Five O, because every episode I watch, I really enjoy. <laughs> so I got a kick out of this. And the thing, the thing I like about this too was that this also has sort of, you know, it has a, um, it has, you know, one of the the main guys is sort of, you know, Chin Ho in the previous episode with like, is he guilty or not? This with Dano, you know, this guy's my friend. And there's kind of the thing of, and it's sort of um, uh, bringing it close to the um, the the uh, the police and everything, which which I really liked. And um, oh, although there is the moment where when Chin Ho shows up at the scene of the murder and he drives he drives up on the lawn and he says something like and he says something like like hey you know guess what i found out and i yelled out that you're parking on someone's lawn parking the street huh what are you doing and but he, he comes up and he's talking and the first thing he says to mcgarry is well i investigated um lou and um he was working last night dano gets a look on his face like oh for shame and McGarrett looks at him and looks at looks at uh, Dano is like yeah this is a murder we investigate everyone not only cops and Chin Ho's kind of like yeah and I also found out this and I'm thinking the irony Chin Ho one episode ago everything that was happening was putting you in prison now you're acting like the cock of the walk with all the news about what's going on with this cop do you not watch the show you're on come on Oh, but I, it, it's and and watch watching the episodes back to back like that without a week in between them. You you really got because that's like in the first five minutes, and you watch it and you go, "Wow, Chin, you're right back at work." You know, you're you're yeah. right, you're right back. There's nothing affected you about what happened <laughs> no, in the past. Didn't week. miss a trick. <laughs> he's he's right back, and and you got to imagine that you know there were probably some other cases in between the episodes or something. But I like the concept that this is maybe the next day. You know what it was like? It's literally a week later. (laughs) Yes, it's like, uh, I need you to investigate a cop who may have uh, done some really bad things. I got it. I got it. I'm on top of it. Don't don't work from experience. I'm kidding, of course, Jinho. But but, uh, overall, yeah, I think it's a really good episode, and it's, it's grounded in... 
a lot of wonderful misdirection in all these characters we keep getting throughout the episode. And Tom Skerritt's really interesting performance. And so, yeah, I, I quite like the episode. Very different from the previous episode, which I appreciated. Yeah. And like I said, this is my favorite from season two, which I have to admit, when I pick my favorites, a lot of times there's a lot of bias that goes into them. This this one is one of them for two reasons. One, James MacArthur's Dan Williams is one of my TV boyfriends. I love him. <laughs> I always will. I was heartbroken when James MacArthur died because mm. I love Dan Williams so much. So this is a very Dan Williams episode because yes. it's very much... He's in, a, in between a rock and a hard place because he's investigating the murder of a woman that he knew that he was friends with that's also uh, the wife of one of his good friends from school. Mm-hmm. But... He's also very loyal to his team and to Steve and doing things Steve doing things Steve's way. So it's like he kind of can't win either way. Yes. And James MacArthur plays that beautifully. Because like you said, when Chin Ho comes up saying that, you know, yes. checking loose. And believe me, I was wondering if you were going to notice the <laughs> Chin's parking job. Because I literally have a note that says, park anywhere, Chin. <laughs> Because whatever it is he says when he steps out of the car, you can yell about a dozen different things about bad parking back at him, (laughs) if you so choose. Yes, and you should. (laughs) I love Chin, but he has his faults, and parking is one of them. (laughs) Just literally, he's parking on the lawn like he's like arriving at a kegger at my family's, you know, and there's property. There's so much space, yeah, (laughs) on the sidewalk. You know, I mean, not on the sidewalk, but the street. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's not. We're not in like we're not in Brooklyn or somewhere. We're in a suburban street somewhere in Hawaii. You know, there's tons of room. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's great. But yeah, I mean, so we have uh, Chin giving the information about Lou's alibi, and Danny being totally affronted by this. So I guess we're going to forget that also that in the previous season, Danny's butt was on the line when he sh- apparently shot somebody yes. that was unarmed, mm-hmm. and then again we have Chin Ho just previously. Who do you work for? Steve is very <laughs> thorough. He does. He considers everybody yes. a suspect. Mm-hmm. But then you see Danny trying to cope with Lou in Make, his apartment. Yeah. That's a hell of a scene. It yeah. is because it's two really good actors going together, and it's it's well written. It's nicely done. Yeah, and yeah. Tom Skerritt is basically Tom Skerritt without a mustache. This was <laughs> only a couple years before he did Mash. The, the movie. Oh, because uh-huh. uh-huh. he was Duke Forrest, who never made it to the series. So yes, yeah, yeah, and he had a little more facial hair then. So yeah, I I get what you mean. He he needs the facial hair to mm-hmm. I don't balance his face. I don't know how to explain it, but yes, I know what mm-hmm. you mean. Like Marcel Marceau without the white makeup on his face. Who is that? You know, it's the same thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Is there anything I can do? Just ask. Danny, the one thing I want right now, need now, is to feel as though I'm helping find whoever kills my wife. Now, McGarrett refused me. Maybe he wouldn't refuse you if you ask. You would ask that, wouldn't you? Okay. I'll talk to Steve in the morning. But for now, try to get some sleep. I'll get you some bedding. Yeah, I would ask that. 
And that you're right, that, that scene where the two of them are talking is the the first time you watch the episode it's a just a great scene the dialogue i think is very good and it's two friends who haven't who were so close at one time and now they aren't as close and it's clear as dan dano sitting there that it's so sort of like okay something else is going on here but but he's still like he's my friend yeah you know and and it's it's very nicely done and um it's just a it's just i actually wish and this would never have happened on TV. But I should kind of wish they'd done it like they had framed it in such a way where they could have done it in like one take. Yeah, that would have been interesting. It's like a four-minute-long scene, and they could have framed it where like maybe the camera could have just shifted slightly to emphasize one over the other. You know, because the acting is strong enough that like when Tom Skerritt goes to the back of the set there's like a bookcase or something and then you get like a medium shot on him his acting is strong enough that you could have left the camera where it was and he could have acted as long as you kept dano sort of in a space where you could have seen him reacting too yeah uh and and i would have i would have i i said that both times i watch it i would have loved to have seen that scene in one long shot but i don't think that's anything they ever would have done on tv at this time no no that would have been mm. just too too much, I think, for that time. That would have been... Yes, yes. But, I mean, it is such a great scene. And like you've been saying, once you know the ending, it plays so much differently the second time yes. around. But nothing changes. I mean, except for your perception. No, no, because no. what it looks like is a guy who peaked in high school lamenting that his life didn't stay that high. And now mm-hmm. his wife has been taken from him as well. The one good thing in his life is mm-hmm. now gone. And Danny trying to say, no, you've got something worth living for. And it plays so completely differently the second time yes. around. Yes. And and there's some there's something, too, about the way, like, in that scene where he's in, in Danny's apartment. And there's, like, there's some space there for them to move around in. But then when they go to Lou's place, Lou's place <laughs> with Tom Skerritt. When they go to Lou's place later on, he's he's got, like, space around him. But he's, like, he's, like, literally, like encased himself he's like sitting in a chair there's a little couch there's another little couch and there's like a t- and he's literally like sitting within a tiny rectangle mm-hmm. on one side of the room and it's almost like he's gone from like i, I i'm not i'm not going to say what happens in the episode but it almost feels like he's like because of what happened because of what he's lost he's like his world is like shrinking around him yes and now he's like and and that's why when they they talked to him at one point and i thought he was going to get mad and push over the tv and i thought don't do that because that's like you're it's like you're a kid and you made like you, you know you're a kid and you're in, you're you're in your 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 parents house and you make a fort and the fort that's your place you don't mess up the fort. No. You get in the fort. You don't. And that's what he's done. He's built like an adult fort. You know, he's got a chair, a couple chairs, a couch. He's got a TV and he's got booze. And that's all. And he's got a view outside. That's all he needs at that moment. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a sad, almost claustrophobic thing because they don't, they don't frame it like within the space. You, you see all the room around him. And then he's kind of like sitting off on one side of the frame in this little rectangle. Yeah. And it's like, ooh. And there's something kind of, um, tra- well, tragic about it. Um, and and um, and you you hope you hope he can find a way out, but there hits a point where you think maybe, unfortunately, he won't be able to, which is too bad. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was just every scene with with Lou and Danny just was just so so yes. good, and because he gets and he gets progressively more Lou gets progressively more combative almost, especially yes. the the final scene uh, that you see them yelling in the 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 apartment for reasons we will discuss mm-hmm. later. What's also great about it too, I mean, is that because I said. Danny's in a, between a rock and a hard place, so he's dealing with Lou, and Lou wants nothing more to be involved in the investigation to his wife's murder, which, yeah. when you first watch it, you can totally understand why. When you mm-hmm. watch it the second time, you totally understand yes. why. It, but it's just for a different <laughs> yeah. reason. Yeah. Yes, yes. But yes. then you have Steve, yeah. who's very firm. There is no emotion in a homicide investigation. There's no room for that. Mm-hmm. And yes. to that extent, he kind of keeps things from Danny as well. Because he realizes pretty early on that Danny has some emotional involvement when it comes to Lou and when it comes to Marge and the whole situation. So he kind of holds back with him a little bit because um, there's one scene when they finally go because it turns out Marge was kind of... um, not a flippity gibbet, but um, she, a naughty uh, was, flippity gibbet. Yeah, she was. Well, you know, she was. She was in an open marriage, and her husband was not. Basically, let's put it. <laughs> he that didn't way. get the memo. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's put yeah. it that way. And she had at least two boyfriends that they know of. Well, Lou apparently doesn't know this, and they keep that from him because at first Danny can't believe it when Steve tells him. Because yes. if you'll notice, Danny is with Lou when they catch Lonnie. At the house mm-hmm. or at the apartment? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And bring him in for questioning. Danny doesn't know anything about that. He learns about it at the, at the graveside service, which that preacher, mm-hmm. my God, I, how did anybody stay awake That's during a... that? <laughs> it's a beautiful, the, the thing that kept me awake is it's a beautifully shot scene. It is. The, all the camera, it's all low angles looking up at people and you see the, the cloudy, beautiful sky behind them, which kind of at the end of the funeral kind of clears up. Not, not like an effect. But it's like as it's ending, the clouds are no longer there, um, which probably means they shot it later in the day or the next day. But it looks kind of like now that the funeral's done, continue on with your life. The clouds have cleared up. Go, go, go for it. Yes. Yes. So it's not till then that, that Danny finds out about uh, Marjorie's indiscretions. And mm-hmm. then they don't tell Lou because, again, that puts Danny into another hard position where he tells he tells Lou two things. One, that there's no progress in the case and two you know he does not tell him at that moment that his that his wife that he just buried has been running around they don't tell him until later and it's great because in that scene lou apparently is devastated by this news kind of goes into shock quit speaking danny and and steve leave and outside danny accuses steve of interrogating lou yeah and i love it because steve doesn't back down and he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly what I was doing. He's got 36 minutes or something like that that he can't be accounted for on his shift. Mm-hmm. What if he found mm-hmm. out about these levers? What would he do? And he's just mm-hmm. very businesslike and very, he's that, that dogged detective, that dogged policeman. Yes. Yeah. You know, I am looking for a killer. I'm looking for anybody with a motive. I don't think it was the, the first boyfriend we found. And he's being very blunt and very matter-of-fact to Danny, reminding him in a way that there's no room for emotion in this investigation. Yes. Yeah. And it's a really, really good scene because Jack Lord and James MacArthur have excellent chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Four scenes like that where they can play that tension where you you know that they obviously there's a lot of mutual love and respect there, but Steve is the boss and mm-hmm. he's going to keep you the way he wants you, I guess. 
and remind mm. you of how this is done. Wait a minute, huh? You weren't just telling him about Marge in there. You were questioning him. That's right, Denno. That's my job. You still think of him as a suspect, don't you? We're after a murderer, Denno. If you were a suspect, I'd treat you the same way, and if I were a suspect, I'd expect you to do the same thing. He's got a perfect alibi. He was on patrol. Yeah, except there's a hole in it. The coroner set the time of death at 2.45 a.m. No, I checked the logs. Lou was cruising Coco Head. He logged a report at... 2.31, the next report wasn't until 3.07. That leaves 36 minutes. Even so, that doesn't prove opportunity. No, but it doesn't establish a solid alibi either. If Lou knew about his wife's lover, lovers, what do you think he'd do? Yeah, it's it's there. there yeah, there's some really wonderful scenes. That, and, and, and throughout it, yeah, Lou is gradually getting um, more something or other. I, it looks more determined at one point. But it also looks like maybe more screw screwball yeah. too as it's, as it's going along. In most of it, most of what it comes across as with Lou is he's becoming more and more unhinged because of his wife's yes. murder, trying to catch who did it. Yes, especially when he discovers that she has been enjoying someone else while he's been out. Someone copping around. Someone's else. Some someone's else's. <laughs> So. <laughs> there's, there's a multiple plus one yes yeah, yeah that's um because and yeah that's and that comes to light in they know that there's been other people in the house because they have two unidentified prints and then they yes. catch lonnie at the apartment which is great because this is one of those things that's a little bit convenient i don't know why chin ho and kono were staying in that apartment all night that you know i mean it's a crime scene but why uh-huh. those two are in that apartment all night and just happen to be there yes. when lonnie shows up and uses the key to get in and then they arrest mm-hmm. him on that beautifully printed couch i love that couch <laughs> <laughs> but that's all i mean that's a little bit convenient but you kind of overlook it yes. for everything else mm-hmm. Especially when they get him in and and start interrogating him. And then we get the prints that come back and one of them are his and then the other one is Gary Oliver. Yes, Yes. go Gary. And his fro. (laughs) And he has some poofy, poofy hair in this episode. He was in a previous episode in the first season where he also played somebody that was rather questionable and didn't make a very good friend. But his mm. hair was much more tamed. This time, the humi- they let the humidity ride with it, and it was very poofy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he's Gary's one of those characters who, at um, at one point, as someone is talking about him, the line, um, innocent men don't jump out of windows, <laughs> comes up. So that's the kind of character, man, when you bend down the river, you jump. I forget which. That that was oh, me he- pretending to be his girlfriend. But yeah. uh, Oh, yeah, she was, says, because something about when you've been in prison, you learn to jump or something like that. You learn to jump, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he does mm-hmm. jump. We are talking a Superman flying leap out a closed window. It's a, it's a good one. It yeah. is amazing. It's a good stunt. Yeah, yeah. The the um he he goes through the window on the the set or wherever they are, and then you see like the awning over the driveway um or, or the parking spaces in this apartment building, and he flies through the window, does a little flip onto this little awning, and then leaps down and takes off. And then Jack Lord comes out a moment later, and I was hoping he would have leapt off, but he doesn't. He stands there like Jack Lord, and he <laughs> says, "You know, Dano, go get him." Yeah. And I thought, I thought for a second because it's not that far. He could have. He could have. You know, he didn't have to jump down. He could have sort of sat himself down and just dropped down. 
Um, but uh, but it's great to see him come through the window there for real and stand there going, get him, Dan. Yeah, he's not going to ruin his suit for that guy. No, you're on the ground, no, Danny. No Go chase him. Yeah, there's no way he'll. You know, he'll. We'll catch him eventually. I'm not, I'm not messing up this suit for that. Yes, yes. And so they they talk to Annette, which is the first girlfriend of many girlfriends that mm. we end up meeting that Gary Oliver has. Yeah. Because from what I understand of it, Gary <laughs> Oliver is something of a gigolo. Yes. Yeah. When you yeah you see him, it's a little tough to gauge, but I guess he because is because he seems to like to date women with money. And takes them for what he can. And then he moves on. I've seen him now in two episodes. I don't particularly see the appeal of him. But it was (laughs) 1970. The standards were different. Maybe he could have earned bank that way. I don't know. Yes, from the... um... Uh, the uh, the snooty lady who uh, who uh, shows up at the end to yeah. the um, to the to the woman who who I thought from a distance I thought for a brief second was Jessica Walter, but she's not. No. When she what, the the I forget the woman's name the um it's gl- the one who, you, who goes you, to McGarrett's how office. How do you forget her name when she was so specific when she said it to Jenny? Because I love that catty exchange between the two of them. It's Gloria Warren. Mr. McGarrett has asked me to leave my phone number. Your phone number? Gloria. I know the name. Warren. Phone? 737-7913. Make sure he gets it, huh? I certainly will. Warren, yes. Oh, I have Mrs. Warren. I have Warren written down right here. Yes. She, That's right. Cause, she's yeah. the other biased reason I love this episode is because I love her <laughs> so much. She's the reason why uh-huh. I finally decided to cut all my hair off and have a pixie cut was because I saw her <laughs> hair and I'm like, why can't I just have that and be fabulous like her? I need this. Yes. Because she yeah. is fabulous. She could, yeah, because when she walks in, she she looks fantastic. She's got the short skirt on, and she sits down. And she crosses her legs and looks at McGarrett. McGarrett, like even you know, I for a split second, I thought McGarrett was like, I don't know what to do. I um, I'm, I I've lost my cool. I don't I don't know where to look. I don't know what to say. And maybe he had like um, you know, like he just in case that happens, he has like little cards on his desk. <laughs> Where he, he just looks and he just speaks from the cards or something. But but the way she sat there, she's very much like, well, here I am. What happens now? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm just a police officer just doing my job. And and the way the way both Kono, the Kono and um, Chinho kind of leap up when she walks by. Yes. At, at first I thought they were going to follow her, but then I realized they were just looking at her yeah and can you blame them she's she's Not fabulous really. because no, when she, she, is, she yep. sits down in that office and now she owns that room yes she does and they're like yeah. so you know what information do you have and she's like oh well i used to go with gary oliver and you know when i ran out of money he put me in the hospital and i figured one t- mm-hmm. good turn is worth another yes. and it's like ah vengeance okay mm-hmm. yeah and she's like no bones about it and she can and she gives up names she goes he was going with Mrs. Morgan, and now he's with uh, Mrs. Hadwell, and mm-hmm. it's a very prominent woman who is supposed to be like older. And mm-hmm. what was it she said that something to the effect of, "Oh, when you get to be her age, it doesn't matter where your family tree is yes. rooted." 
Yes, yes. And it's like, <laughs> honey, we need to go have some coffee at a cafe. People watch. I need your opinions on everyone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, that's it's a great she she's she's a great character. Yeah, like um they and I and there there are like when she sits down in front of McGarrett and it's like there's like she sits down she's got like a I think she has like a folded up fan yes. in her hand or something yes. like that. And she she crosses her legs and she sits there and she looks around. She even throws a quick look at the camera. Mm. But she's looking around, so it's not really she's not specifically looking at the camera. But she looks around, and then she looks up at McGarrett, and the, it's funny, like, McGarrett really honestly does have, like, maybe three or four seconds of close-ups where he's like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. He Eventually, he figures it out, but there's there's a few moments where she's just sitting there talking, and the camera... When he's when McGarrett's talking with the ladies in this episode, like like during this scene, it's all like really close ups shots of their faces, and then when he's interviewing the gal whose name I don't remember, who um, Lou hits. Oh, Annette. Um, yes. Um, when he's in, when McGarrett's interviewing or interrogating her, like there's some really weird angles and and the camera's swooping back and forth and people are looking into the camera. It's going back. It's really it's it's some really weird stuff and it's almost like he's um like coaches trying to uh like okay we've got two like lady interrogation scenes here and I'm gonna shoot them very differently. You know, one of them's like an erratic kind of the camera swinging back and forth and doing this, and another is just these extreme close-ups on faces as they're talking. It's a nice, um, it's a nice bit of direction. I think it works really well. It 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 brings a little bit, um, it brings a little bit extra to it because it's not just like two people sitting there and you're over the shoulder, over the shoulder, you know that kind of thing. It's like close up, close up, close up, and it's just I think I think it, I I like it. I yeah. it's, a, it's some fun direction. What exactly was your relationship with him? Now, what kind of a question is that? I understand cops have to know personal things, but there's a limit after all. Well, what I meant was, how well did you know him? Real well, I tell you. Oh, until I found out about him, of course. Of course. Have you seen him recently? Not since I broke our engagement. I told him, I said, Oliver, I don't ever want to see your ugly face around me again. Did you, uh... Always call him by his last name. No, not always. Sometimes I called him worse than that. And then we have the the third girlfriend. Well, well, in the by that point, it's the third. We have Annette. We have Mrs. Warren, and then we have Mrs. Shively show up. This is the mm. one. Oh, yes. <laughs> this was the little bit of tension breaking humor that came in mm-hmm. because she is a trip. Because mm-hmm. at one point she says that because it's Danny and Shin Ho that interrogate her, and yes. she tells we start off with her telling Shin Ho that she he did she, he doesn't look Irish. Yes, that was a great that was a great moment. Shin Ho Kelly, oh you don't look Irish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from that point you know you're on a ride. Yes, because she's mm-hmm. she wants to wait because she's she really doesn't give much useful information. She talks about one of her husbands, Roger. She mm. talks about the fact that she broke off her engagement with Oliver. Yeah, she was fun. She was a yeah. kind of she kind of swoops into the episode for a minute or two and then swoops out again. Yeah, she really was the she was like I said she was like the tension breaking humor because we're ratcheting yes. it up, ratcheting yeah. it up. You take a breather with Mrs. Yeah. Shively, who 
is <laughs> on the one hand she does contribute to the plot a little bit by saying that yes Gary Oliver has had numerous affairs with numerous women for various reasons mm-hmm. but we have that little bit of a break because when Danny gets a call to go somewhere and leaves Chin Ho with her and she goes I changed my mind I decided to tell you everything and Chin Ho looks <laughs> <Yes>. just absolutely <laughs> flummoxed <laughs> Yes, yes. He's like, God, I wish I was in prison. Uh, <laughs> Man, why didn't that bribery charge stick? <laughs> oh, that was me. It turns out it was me. I have a confession. That <laughs> was me. Come on. Come on. And may I ask, um, and this is just be a quick fashion question. Sure. The woman who is in the room, whose name I forget, the one who Lou hits, mm-hmm. um... Uh, what what is she wearing? Because she has two dresses on. One of them looks like she took a quilt <laughs> and put arms and like a head hole in it and put it over herself. And the other is this. Well, I guess she's sitting at home just relaxing, so it's kind of comfortable. Yeah, yeah. They're both stuff. They're both shift dresses, but um, okay. one is obviously more of a almost a nighty style, so it's much much shorter. The one that because when Lou hits her, I mean, we're almost getting flashed. Because it's that short, yeah. um, and mm-hmm. that's more of like a nighty around the house style. The okay. and the other one's just a little bit longer. Everybody was wearing shift dresses. Mrs. Shively was. Gloria Warren was wearing a fabulous one. Jenny always uh-huh. has great ones. I love her, yes. and I loved her being catty <laughs> to Mrs. Warren at the. Yes, that was fun. That was a fun scene. Yeah. yeah. She's like, well, okay, yeah. okay. She's a delight. So yes. yeah, yeah, so that's basically what it was. It was just kind of a nighty style. And you know we're talking we're talking dresses and we're we're giggling as we watch it, but it's actually in the end the episode is kind of a semi bleak ish episode, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it is yeah. quite quite bleak. Mm-hmm. And why don't we take that uh, this opportunity to say this is your spoiler warning? So yes. we will be discussing the ending. Obviously, I will put it in the description how long the spoilers last. So okay, yes, because I was I was going to say that I forgot um, from the previous episode that spoilers done, folks. I forgot <laughs> to say it. So if you if you're still if you're still waiting for the spoiler to end, we're almost done talking about the second one. Sorry, go <laughs> sorry, back. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, check the description. I will have yes. the the length of the spoilers, so you will not be spoiled because this is definitely one episode you have to watch before you listen to us ramble about it. Please, please don't spoil yourself going into it by listening to us. Watch the episode first. You will you will not regret it if you watch it first. Great. Spoiler warning, here we go. Here's how it ends. Lou, after he roughs up Annette, and he gets yelled at by Danny, because Danny's going to tell, tell him about Steve, and it's a great scene where they blow up, Lou blows up and loses his cool and goes it goes after Danny about it. And Danny ends up leaving because he basically kicks him out of the house. It's a great scene. And he leaves. And Lou ends up finding Gary Oliver because Gary goes to Gloria Warren and says he needs money to get off the island. And she says, fine, I'll have to go cash a check. And he's loving on her and kissing on her. And, you know, we already know he put her in the hospital. So we're kind of suspect that he that she's willing to get rid of him for $3,000. Well, it turns out she calls Lou to let him know where Gary is. Lou busts in with a gun, and Gary obviously, you know, is like, I didn't kill your wife. And Lou says, I know, I said you're the reason why she's dead. And then he shoots him dead. Mm. And then he calls McGarrett, as you do. So now we know 
that Lou was the one who killed his wife. So there's your twist. There's your big twist right there. Lou has been our killer the Mm -hmm. entire time. And as he's writing, this is what kills me, is that Steve shows up and pushes him down and says, all of these cops were working extra for you to, to find this guy. And you just kicked them all in the teeth. Now they have to work extra hard to show that we're not all killers with badges. And as he's riding in the car with Danny, Lou is still working the lie, saying, Mm -hmm. I want you to know this. I just, she called me and let me know where he was. And I went over to talk to him and he was laughing at me. And the next thing I knew, the gun was in my hand and I was shooting him. Totally playing up that it was second degree murder. It was a crime of passion. And as Danny says, you know, a sympathetic judge, sympathetic jury only get a couple years for this. So you think he's going to get away with this because obviously Danny believes him. Everybody kind of believed that Gary Oliver was the one who did it. And then you have the second twist, which is Mrs. Hadwell showing up because uh, Steve had gone to talk to her previously. She wasn't at home when she said she would be and didn't come into the office until after Gary was killed to say that she should have come in sooner because she was Gary's alibi. He was with her the entire night that Mrs. Morgan was killed. And so that's when Steve puts it together that Lou did this. And it's a really great, really great way to end the episode because Lou is on his, being led on the way out after Steve says it's going first degree murder for both counts. And as Lou's leaving, he tells Danny, he goes, I'm sorry, I've always been a loser, even with my friends. And it's a heartbreaking mm-hmm. ending for Danny. But it's just so good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I will. I, I'm going to jump back just one moment where I, I, where I, you know, I mentioned earlier that Lou, you see him in this little space by the window with the TV and the couch or the whatever around him. After he, the scene where he goes to the woman and hits her and gets his information from her and pretty much when you've already watched the episode, you know that he's, once he finds this guy, he's going to kill him. When Danny goes back to Lou's house, Lou has now spread out everything again. Yes. And he's got like a shortwave radio. So he's gone from this point where like his wife was, was killed and you don't quite know what he's up to. And he's, he's put himself in this tiny space. And now that he's got this information, he's put this plan in gear and he's suddenly spreading out again. And he's becoming like more confident again. Why? Because he's a freaking nutball is why. And the joy, the, to, to me, the, the, the great thing about the episode is that, like, it starts off with this guy, like, being just like, you really feel for him. You feel horrible for what's happened. And then as, as you learn more about what his wife was doing, you feel even worse. And then he goes and he hits the woman to get the information from her and you think no that's not the way to go that's not the route to take and and you're kind of like you're kind of like um uh teetering like okay man i I get what you're i get what you're trying to accomplish but i think you're going about it the wrong way and then he shoots the guy and you learn what's going on and suddenly the whole thing flips you know it's like um i was going to mention an agatha christie novel that involves an unreliable narrator that changes the whole face of the novel if you read it a second time, but I won't. But it's sort of that thing. If you you watch the episode, you get to the end, and then when you go back and watch it again, Tom Skerritt's no longer playing a absolutely bereaved and heartbroken husband. He's playing a nut. He's playing a screwball who's kind of playing everyone, 
but just barely keeping it under control. And it's so good to watch this the second time. And I'm sure most people, when they were watching this when it originally aired, probably didn't catch it a second time. But I th- I think this is this is this is a good one to go back to and rewatch and watch Tom Skerritt's performance and some of the things he says and some of the things he does. Because once you learn what's going on, it completely spins the episode around. And it's it's a it's a great ending, I think, and it's also a sad ending. Because, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, um, oh, Danny, you knew Lou? Oh, yeah, Lou and I, we were great friends. And, you know, his wife and I, we were all great friends. And then everyone meets Lou, and it's like, oh, wow, he's a piece of work. <laughs> and, and whenever Danny goes to talk to him, he's like, hey, Lou, remember? We used to have some good times. And Lou's, like, clearly becoming unhinged. And it's like, you, you, you know, I've, you know, we, I, maybe we've all had friends like that, you know, and it's been like, oh, this person coming over is a good friend of yours? Oh, yes, you're going to love him. And and then they show up and it's like, oh my god, what is going on? And that that's kind of what this is like. And it's Danny at first trying to be like, oh no, Lou's a good guy. But then seeing Lou basically go screwy as the episode goes along. And um, I think I think it's sharply done. And I think if Tom Skerritt had had a mustache, <laughs> I would have had more sympathy for him. So I'm glad he didn't. Yeah, well, and to be honest, Tom Skerritt probably should have had a mustache. He was a cop. That Those were like standard issue. Oh, but, pretty standard. But yeah. maybe that didn't start really happening until like the mid-70s. Maybe. Possibly, yes. I know. My dad yes. My dad was a cop for 25 years, and he had a mustache the entire time. <laughs> of course. So, of course. <laughs> you know, I know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> yes, yes. But, yeah, I mean, I have a note in here that... Especially at the very end, that Tom Skerritt has never been so punchable because you you do you want to just punch him in the face after everything that he's yeah, done. Yes. Especially because yeah. he he broke Danny's heart. I don't, you can't tolerate yeah. that. No, you can't. But it is no. it is just yeah. so good because when you when you get to go back and watch it a second time, everything plays so differently. From mm-hmm. this is a grieving husband slowly losing his cool. To the point that yes. this good cop roughs somebody up, trying roughs up a woman trying to get information mm-hmm. about where his alleged wife's killer is, to you know actually shooting the guy. So you yeah. it plays from that to he is playing it. Just he's playing Danny. He's playing the whole mm-hmm. grieving thing. Yes. Everything has an ulterior motive to it. And so that whole scene in Danny's apartment where he's lamenting, you know, peaking in high school, he's, it's really him saying that he, again, he, cause he said he, he blamed everybody until he ran out of people and then he had to blame himself. He's still not blaming mm-hmm. himself. Yes. And it's amazing when you rewatch it and, and see that he's actually ha- throwing himself a full on pity party. because I got all of this stuff and then my wife cheated on me it reminds me of there's an episode of of Batman here we go it's a King Tut episode and and King Tut is is crying and he's like my my queen hates me and my handmaiden is is, you know betrayed me and everybody's being mean to me it's the same (laughs) vibe just more serious yes yes there's there's a there's um there, there's even I, I love that moment I, I I'd forgotten this but I just happened to see this where after after Lou shoots that guy and and he calls him McGarrett and everybody shows up and sort of like Danny's standing on one side of the room and McGarrett comes in checks the pulse of the dead man goes up to um Lou who's kind of sitting there like 
Oh, nothing ever goes right for me. Like the droopy of Hawaii Five O or something. <laughs> oh God! And McGarrett like goes up to him and like push it like not even a push like he just like shoves him hard onto the bed you know when he goes like every cop is out there trying to help you out then you pull shenanigans like this and you can see danny is kind of giving mcgarrett a bit of a look like okay well yeah this is bad but you know maybe that's maybe that's a bit too much but that at this point we know what's going on so at this point we're like hey mcgarrett shove him again (laughs) he needs another shove but it was like I I don't think like in the episodes I've seen of Wife I've I don't think I've seen I well I probably have but like McGarrett he gets so mad yeah right there I mean the way he shoves him I mean like Tom Skerritt like you know Jack Lord is is looks looks like a giant compared to little Tom Skerritt in this you know and he, when he when he shoves him on the bed it's like Tom Skerritt like whoa you know he doesn't make a noise that would be silly but you know he, he falls backwards and like bounces on the bed he it's what's that like he bounces it back and then he pushes him again and then he you know but he pushes and it's so it's it's violent moment and it's just like to see McGarrett like lose his cool at that moment and be like you son of a yeah <laughs> everybody is working to help you and you you do this. You Yeah, cuz we we've, we've seen McGarrett angry and it, it tends to be a restrained anger. It it kind of is usually limited to shouting, very impassioned shouting. This he got physical with because he's just that just incensed. <laughs> yeah, he's pissed. And it's kind of nice to see, especially since we kind of know what's going on, but even at that moment, Steve doesn't know the truth yet. He just thinks that this mm-hmm. idiot idiot police officer went and shot their suspect and mm-hmm. he's just enraged that all of these people put in all this work and all of this, this this manpower to try to solve this case and get justice and you just blew it because you let yeah. your emotions get in the way i'm surprised steve yeah. didn't like throw him down the stairs <laughs> yes. he was he had, really if upset. he had stairs to my yeah maybe when they're all leaving the apartment he gives give him a little shove <laughs> come on jackass yeah down the stairs he goes I t- I mean, I, I guess, I guess the thing is, like, if you're if you're McGarren, you don't you don't normally do something like that. The best place to give someone a real big push like that is when they're on a bed. Yeah. Because they're just gonna fall backwards and bounce right back up, and it'll be kind of whoa, look, yeah. hey, you know, kind of thing. So yeah. it's like you could tell I'm angry, but you hit the pillow and bounce back. Yeah. So. But there's you know, no I, I shoved you to show into, it. Yeah. Exactly, like I, I, I let you, you know, I push you out of the plane into the pillow factory. You know, it's, you're going to be fine. And he had it coming. He had so much coming. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah and, and Mrs. Hadwell was no better. Because first of all, okay, so she's supposed to be older, and <laughs> I don't... They, okay, so age is very funny. Because they have a lot of people that are like, he was 24, and I'm like, he is 36. But in her <laughs> case, I think... How old was she? Because she has kind of grayish hair, which I think they did. They put the gray in. That's what it looks like. Um, yeah. So she was supposed to be older, but it's like, how old was she? 50s, supposed to, was, was she maybe? supposed to be in her fifties? But 50s. she actually looks like good forties for nineteen seventy, and they're making yeah. her sound like sound like she should be using a walker when they first talk about <laughs> her. <laughs> and it's funny because they yeah they yeah that's true and they and in the in the in the way that um. Uh, with uh, was it Mrs. Miss Warren um, and 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 McGarrett? They, they're close-ups on faces, but the close-ups were 
right close-ups and and when he's talking to mrs is it hadwell i'm sorry yeah mrs um, hadwell um they're like McGarrett and Dan- Danny are getting close ups, but she's getting like a slight low angle shot, like under her chin, looking up at her. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because she's like got a lot of money. <laughs> Maybe that's like or something. But it, it was weird that it was like it shot almost the same, but when they shot Miss Warren, like it was right in on her face and like have a look at her. <laughs> but with Miss Hadwell, it was kind of like at the chin, looking up, like mm, yes, like Margaret Dumont or something had shown up. Yes, mm, yes. yes Ms. Like- oh, Miss Rufus Firefly is here. <laughs> He's going to talk to me about yes. Yes, like look at her crow's feet. Can you see how aged and decrepit she is? <laughs> Yes, I, I and the more I watch it, the, the, like when I watch the second time, I really appreciated the direction on it because they're really, they're they're really for a episodic TV show that was churning out so many hours. Like they're they're not just um, they're not just um, doing the standard shots and things. They're actually trying some different different variations, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, it, they definitely do experiment quite a bit on on the show, and I really I really do appreciate that, especially for the time period that it was in. I mean, yes. last season we got a first person point of view thing, which was not easy to do with the equipment they had back no, then. No, no, there was this was Rock Rocky was our steady cam. So yeah. any anything like that before Rocky is like some poor soul <laughs> with a very heavy camera. Yeah. Oof. yeah, so they do they do some really great work. They they treated mm. it a little more cinematically than just your standard you yes. know, episodic television show, which which was really mm. nice. But yeah, Mrs. Hadwell, I mean coming in after the fact to say, oh, by the way, I could have saved this guy's life, but my reputation. But and yes, then she, yes, you know, really says, not. oh, I'll go on the stand and say that, yeah, he was with me. Now that he's dead, I mean, it's not like <laughs> it's not like Gary was a great guy, and I'm mourning him. Uh-huh. But I still, mm-hmm. lady, you could have stepped it up. And she admits, though, she does admit that she was, you know, a coward about it. That she should have come yes, soon, come did, forward yeah, sooner, yeah, but. Yeah. Still, lady, I mean, your reputation, really, okay. It's not going to be that and the, great and, now. Yeah, it's, and, 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 and the way, yeah, the, the way they set up her is that you, you don't see her until that scene, but the first thing we see of her property is people playing tennis. We don't even know who the people are. They're, it's just showing that she has a tennis court on her property. And it's kind of an interesting moment where it's like you see like a woman and a man playing tennis. You're like, okay, who are they? Oh, we don't care. Okay, they're just showing. Okay, that's that establishes that. Um, you know, I think even um, forgive me, if I'm wrong, but I think even the Clampets had a tennis court. So that ain't um, they kept livestock there, if I remember correctly. You know, they they um, you know that's that's not that great, but still, I get what they're doing. The fact that like everyone else is in like kind of a small apartment or in a suburban house and these people have a tennis court that's like 10 times the size of the apartments and like the size of the land that the house is on kind of thing i get that i get what you're saying i get what you're saying yeah and because she had all that money she couldn't admit that she was having a dalliance with a dude with very poofy hair (laughs) like that is what when you have money you can say those things because you still have money you were fine And, and to be honest yeah, and to be honest, at the end of the episode, I was actually more worried about like, where is Ms. Warren there and the other lady? Are they are they okay? Because yeah, because they both vanish. Well, and, after their season. There's, 
there's the implication that that it was Gloria Warren that told Lou where she where Gary Oliver mm. was because it was at her house. Yes. So it was mm. like, how does she feel that some dude was shot to death on her bed that yeah. turned out to be somewhat innocent, at least innocent yes. of the crime that he was being accused of. I, I do like her apartment because her apartment seems very 70s to me because it's basically, it's a bed, some like a nightstand and a, like a wet bar. Yes. That's it. There's no kitchen. I don't even think she has a bathroom. You know, it's just like, it's just a bar and a bed. That's, that's <laughs> all you need. 1970s Honolulu. What more do you need? <laughs> yes, exactly. With bar and bed. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. It's, I think it's a very good episode. Um, I do need to watch more episodes of the season to say whether or not it would be my favorite, but uh, I think it's very good. Yes. Well, it's definitely my favorite, and I you can see why. Let's take a moment to check in on our guest cast, shall we? As it's been said, Lou Morgan was played by Tom Skerritt, he was William Walker on Brothers and Sisters, Sheriff Jimmy Brock on Picket Fences, Evan Drake on Cheers, Dr. Thomas Ryan on Ryan's Four, which was a short-lived series that only lasted five episodes. He also turned up in episodes of Wagon Train, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 12 O'Clock High, Combat, Mannix, Death Valley Days, The Virginian, The FBI, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Cannon, Barnaby Jones, SWAT, Beretta, Chicago Hope, Law and Order SVU, Dead Zone, Madam Secretary, and The Good Wife. He was in the movies Beer for My Horses, Swing, The Other Sister, Contact, Poison Ivy, Steel Magnolias, Poltergeist 3, Made to Order, Space Camp, Top Gun, Dead Zone, Alien, Ice Castles, The Devil's Reign, Fuzz, and M.A.S.H. And he was in the TV movies The Birdman, The Last Day, The Maneaters Are Loose, The Calendar Girl Murders, Nightmare at Bitter Creek, The China Lake Murders, The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, Desperation, and Valentine's State. And he was in the miniseries Killer Wave, Category 7, The End of the World, The Grid, and Aftershock, Earthquake in New York. Gary Oliver was played by Sam Melville. This is his second of three episodes. We saw him in the first season episode, Tiger by the Tail. Annette Barnes is played by Jennifer Billingsley. She turned up in episodes of Route 66, Gunsmoke, Death Valley Days, Wagon Train, The Man from Uncle, and The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, Mannix, The Rookies, The New Perry Mason, and Police Story. And she was in the movies Hollywood Man, The Thirsty Dead, Brute Corps, and Lady in a Cage. Lonnie was played by Lanny Kai. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born and The Joker's Wild Man Wild. Gloria Warren was played by Linda Ryan. This is her first of 11 episodes. She also turned up in episodes of The Rockford Files, Charlie's Angels, Lou Grant, Wonder Woman, Last Resort, Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, and The Raven. And she was in the TV movies Women in White, Mind Over Matter, The Seduction of Miss Leona, and Summer Girl. Mrs. Karen Hadwell was played by Jane Adrian. We'll see her in one more episode. She was Nurse Baxter on Medical Center. She was also in an episode of The Brian Keith Show. And she was in the movie Snow Dog. Sergeant Naramura was played by Bill Bast. He was also in the movie Juniper Lane. The priest was Father Brendan Furtado. This is his only credit. Mrs. Shively was played by Alice Lemon. We'll see her in two more episodes. She was also in an episode of Magna P.I. 
Elise was played by Aletha Aguilar. This is her second of five episodes. We also saw her in One for the Money. And in an uncredited role, Mrs. Hadwell's servant was played by Arthur He. This is his fourth of nine episodes. And that is Most Likely to Murder, which, as I said, is my favorite episode of season two. And if you want to read what I wrote about this episode being my favorite and all of my favorite episodes from every season of Hawaii Five-0, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Just check out the Rerun Junkie page. There is actually a page for my Rerun Junkie posts. Just scroll down. It's under the episodes label. Can't miss it. What's going on? Just watching for the mailman, Steve. Dan, I want to thank you for coming on the show once oh, again, yeah. because I always enjoy talking about Hawaii Five-0 with you, because you haven't seen it as often <laughs> as I have, and so I get to subject you oh, to something fun. new, and this time, no nudity. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, you, but I mean, I gave you Martin Sheen with a mustache and Tom Skerritt without, so... Oh, that's true, yeah, I, did, I hadn't thought I, that you got a little switcheroo! Yeah, I did give you something special, and I know what I'm going to uh, torture you with for next season, and you're oh, going to love it. Wait. And again, I don't believe there's any nudity. I'll have to double check. Uh, I'm not sure about the facial hair either. <laughs> so, for anybody listening, please tell me what you are up to and where people can find you online. You go to eventually supertrain.blogspot.com. Uh, that's a podcast I do that talks about uh, short lived TV shows. Uh, Kristen was on there with me talking. Um, what we talked the first time we did a uh, little Green Hornet action, which was um, lots and lots of fun. And then we covered Auto Man, which was also, which is also lots of fun. And um, right now, as we're recording this, I am doing, I'm covering. Um, with my friend, uh, a writer, Mitchell Hadley, we are covering Search, an early 70s um, spy show created by Leslie Stevens, the man who created Outer Limits. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And my friend Amy the Conqueror and myself are talking the live-action Planet of the Apes. And then um, uh, uh, my sweet, uh, dear one, uh, Madeline, and myself are talking uh, The Seeing Detective the Dennis Potter miniseries on the BBC from 1986, which is one of my favorite things ever. And uh, we've been doing that show where I'm on like episode 105 now. So we've been doing that for ages. I'm also on Made for TV Mayhem show with the great and wonderful Amanda Reyes and the, the superb Nathan Johnson. And I'm doing, I'm doing currently, I'm doing a bunch of these minute by minute podcasts where I, I talk about movies in one minute at a time. And I'm doing three in a row right now. I don't know why. One is called 70s Friends of Frankenstein, where I'm talking about Blackenstein and Frankenstein 80. One of them is called One Spooky Minute Spent in a Ghost House, which covers Spookies and Ghost House. And then the other is called Howling 2 and 7-2, which covers Howling 2 and Howling 7. So all those are fun, and we're having good times. And I've got a couple books that I've written, Bleeding Skull, the 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap. And hopefully, fingers crossed, within a month or month and a half of when you hear this, my third book which is called From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring the Henningverse, 1962 to 1971, will have been released. I'm self-publishing it. It should be out early summer of 2021. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Dan. I really do appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. And that is episode 23 of Bookum Dano. 
Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Dan for joining me once again. Like I said, he is a sport because he came back after I subjected him to Gavin McLeod in a prison shower. But I'm so glad that he enjoyed both of the episodes, and I hope you enjoy them too. So be sure to check out Dan and all of his wonderful podcasts and everything else that he does because he is super, super swell. And also I want to give a shout out to Shan, aka Rusting Willpower. She once again supplied me with the sound clips for this episode. Helped me tons. As I said, I'm not gifted at this. So if you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. Also check out the Rerun Junkies page because it's got a list of all my Rerun Junkie posts. And if you'd like to hear me wax poetic about facial hair in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So make sure your alibi is airtight and don't think you're above suspicion when it comes to Steve McGarrett. Until next time, aloha.